going to uh, look at in this passage that's printed on your sheet uh, tonight. The first, our enemy dominates us. The second, our king delivers us. And the third, our lamb substitutes for us. Uh, Pull out that passage and let's read it together. This is the word of the Lord. It is able to change you. We're picking up mid-activity. Jesus has just been through kind of a mock trial, for lack of a better term, He's now been brought to the Roman regional governor, Pilate, who is questioning him and arguing with him. And we pick up mid-conversation. Pilate says to Jesus, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate, clearly not following, says, what is truth anyway? With this, he went out again to the Jews who were gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. But it is your custom for me to release to you uh, one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him on the face. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews who were gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace, and he asked Jesus, where did you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he thought he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted about, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And the crowd said, we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. They carried, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. 
Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was right near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And then down in verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it's finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this. Lord, I was seeing again today that Paul would pray for the people who listened to him speak, for power from you, God, that they would be able to comprehend the love of God in Christ, its width and depth and height and length. Lord, which presumes that they didn't have the power to comprehend even the love of God in Christ on their own, which means that Paul didn't have the power to explain it or make them see it. I don't have that power. My friends don't have that power, but Jesus, you do. So give us power tonight through this passage, these moments together, this room, this evening, to comprehend, to get it, for the light bulbs to go on, for our hearts to be changed, to understand your love for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you thought this election was crazy and polarized, the 2016 presidential election was really unique. And one of the main ways it was unique is how divided and polarized the country was during the fall of the election. That hadn't really happened many times before. What's normal is for people to say, I disagree with you, I'm voting for another person, but that particular fall, it was more like, if, if we disagreed, you're my enemy. You're a bad person, you're part of the problem. A few months after the election happened, uh, Trump got elected, the news started to break that, uh, the, that there was uh, interference in the election. Something more was going on during that fall than anyone was able to kind of perceive at the time. And our enemy, it turns out, was not Americans or people on the other side of the aisle. The enemy of Democrats, it turns out, wasn't so much Republicans or Republicans so much Democrats or Trump voters or Hillary voters. It turns out the enemy behind those enemies was Russia. Uh, the CIA, the Senate Intelligence Committee, both released reports that said the Russian government, the military uh, unit of the Russian government, interfered in the election. Russian troll farms had created thousands of Facebook, fake Facebook accounts through which they then delivered to millions of Americans disinformation, propaganda, conspiracy theories, heated, antagonistic, accusatory political arguments. But nobody posting and reposting and sharing and commenting on those articles had any idea where it came from. 
It seemed like a random lady's Facebook page or a random guy's Facebook page. The attack worked flawlessly because it stoked division, it turned people against each other, and therein weakened the country. So investigations were launched in those early months of the Trump administration to try to get to the bottom of this. And the reason why is you can't fight a battle when you don't know who your enemy is. So people were just trying to find out who's behind this disinformation. And you can't win a battle if you don't understand the scope and the power of your enemy. You're bound to lose a battle if you don't understand the scope of their power. And the same holds true in our lives, in our everyday lives. You and I can't fight a battle when we don't know who our real enemy is, and you certainly can't win a battle when we underestimate or misunderstand the scope of our enemy's power or reign. We're bound to lose those battles. The key question that I want to confront us with before we really get into the details of this account is, do you know who your real enemy really is? That's a question for everybody. Do you know who your real enemy really is? Do you know the scope and the power of who God says your enemy is? Or are you like the rest of us, often like me, and you misidentify your enemy or end up like Peter, like we saw in the previous chapter last week, who was prone to bring swords to gun battles because he fundamentally misunderstood who the enemies of the kingdom of God are. He fundamentally misunderstood who his enemy was. He thought it was the kind of enemy that could be resisted with violence or swords or threats. And because Peter and often us misunderstand the enemies we face and the power they have, we also misunderstand our need for Jesus and the power that he has. So here in this passage that I read just a moment ago, who was Jesus' enemy and who was your enemy in that account? For example, behind Pilate's cowardice, this regional mid-level bureaucrat of the Roman Empire, behind his cowardice, Do you see the greater enemy? Behind the rage and the zeal of the chief priests, did you see the devil? Behind the mob's betrayal of Jesus, Peter's denial of Jesus, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, did you see Satan? I know the devil, Satan, darkness, these things are not things that we talk about. They're not things we think very much about anymore. And that's to our detriment because Jesus talked about them all the time. And Jesus says he sees and knows all things as they are, unlike us. But he says behind all these little enemies, Pilate, the mob, the chief priests, the people, was a greater enemy, an enemy with a capital E. Let me ask us, behind governmental persecution, wherever it is in the world, do you see an enemy with a capital E, or do you just see an oppressive government that's trying to silence people? Behind bullying social pressure to deny or edit the word of God, do you just see social or cultural bullies, or do you see a liar who is always trying to edit and warp and manipulate the word of God to lead people astray? 
behind your own sexual temptations, do you see the tempter fanning the flame of your desire, encouraging you to walk away from a good Savior? And once you've walked away, do you hear an accuser stabbing you in the back, saying Jesus would never have anything to do with someone as far gone as you? Or do you just feel guilt or self-pity? Can you see through that to the greater enemy that's causing it? Behind your parents' divorce, do you see the sower of hate, the murderer, the liar? Behind your bored disinterest in Scripture, do you see the liar who has carefully cultivated your boredom and distraction to lead you away from the one hope you have? Behind stubborn systemic inequities, behind racism, do you see the devil or do you just see narrow-minded people who need more education? Let's talk about me. Ben, behind your busyness, do you just see a schedule that needs to be tweaked? Some more free time that needs to be built in? Or do I see Satan licking his chops that I've been successfully distracted? Ben, behind my unrighteous anger, do I see the great murderer who's always sowing strife and always ginning up anger? Or am I just working on my temper? Do you see just the presenting problems in your world and in your life, or do you see the enemy that God says stands behind it? For example, do you just see the Facebook posts, the Instagram stories, or do you see this greater, darker power behind it, fanning it all into flame for a specific purpose. Do you know your enemy? Do you know the scope and the power of the one that you're up against? Until you correctly identify this great enemy, who's the enemy behind all the little enemies in your life, you'll never grasp why you need Jesus to die on a cross for you. You just never will. You'll know it's, you'll have this thought process. I know this is supposed to be important. Like Christians talk about this a lot. We make a really big deal about Good Friday and Easter. But, you know, I just, I'm just not feeling it. I don't get for me why this is important. That'll be you until you understand the enemy that has you or had you if you are a Christian. You'll never understand why you need a savior like Jesus. And like I mentioned last week, you'll see, and I'm not saying there's anything bad about any of these professions or these people, I'm just saying you'll see a satisfying solution to your problems just in a doctor, a therapist, a counselor, a mom, a dad, a pastor, a pill, a better schedule. Because just little enemies, little roadblocks, I can get over them. So let's listen again to God remind us who our enemies are. He, he is very... He's very careful and very um, helpful in reminding us frequently in his word. These are just a few brief places in scripture where God reminds us who our enemy is. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, in effect, if if you're, you're a person, you find yourself kind of perpetually checked out or bored when you hear kind of the Bible opened or the gospel presented or your friends kind of start doing their, you know, Jesus talk and you're kind of like mentally checking out. Um, It's not a matter of mere just cognitive disinterest. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 
It's because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep you from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. If you had eyes like God to see what was really going on, you've been blinded by a force far superior to you. That's why it's boring. Paul says you'd be a person desperately in need of a cosmic, conquering, superior Savior who is more powerful than that enemy, who can give you your sight back and give you ears to hear the truth. In Romans 7, Paul describes the inner life, the inner dialogue of a religious person who's trying, 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 trying really hard to be a better person. He describes it in vivid detail. That person stuck in that situation who's a religious person but is in fact dead says, thinks, feels, I'm of the flesh, I'm sold as a slave under sin. I don't understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I only always do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want but the evil that I don't want, that's what I keep doing. I see at work in me a law waging war against my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul goes on to answer the question of that trapped struggler. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our master and king. Jesus himself, we covered it this fall in chapter 8 of John's gospel, says everyone who practices sin, which is everyone who kind of delightedly lives in sin, is a slave to it. You're not in control. It controls you. You don't make decisions. It makes decisions for you. You don't choose when to walk away. It chooses. And then Jesus says one sentence later, but if the Son sets you free, then free you will be. Do you remember all the miracles and healings of Jesus through the Gospels? We didn't cover them much in this particular series, but you look at Matthew, Mark, or Luke, filled with these moments of Jesus healing people. Do you know what he often does when he heals you? You might be someone who's been sick or bleeding for more than a decade. You might be a paralytic, someone who's blind, someone who's deaf. And Jesus would heal that person and restore their body to health. And then he would say, your sins are forgiven. What he's doing is he's cluing us into there's something more than just genetics that's gone wrong. That sin is something with a capital S. It's a force to be reckoned with. It is a darkness bigger than us and it affects our bodies, our emotions, our thoughts, our minds the created world, our systems that we make, our communities that we live in. Jesus was doing battle with the devil when he freed people. He said, if you're kidnapped in someone's house, if someone's going to get you back and deliver you and save you, they have to bind up your captor. And Jesus said, that's what I've come to do, to bind up your captor that you might be delivered. On and on and on and on, Through the Gospels, through Scripture, the Bible describes sin as having the upper hand as any kind of life outside of life in Jesus as being a slave to sin, living under the dominion, the dark rule of this tyrannical power. Now, I know this is um, heavy stuff for everybody, right? I mean, uh, 
Yeah, this isn't flipping stuff that we just toss out there to kind of prepare our hearts for this passage. But if you're here tonight and you're not alive in Jesus, please hear me say this. And I think I can speak on behalf of God when I say this. This is God's word to you. If you're not in Jesus, please stop trying to be a better person. Please stop trying to moderate how much you go downtown. Please stop trying to clean up your language. Please stop trying to work on your temper to cut back on how much you do this or that. The reason why is the Bible says you're operating under a delusion that you're in control and that your efforts towards improvement are going to get you anywhere. It doesn't work like that. God calls you to come to Jesus the liberator, not to go back to you and to work, work, work. He says, you're stuck in slavery. You can't get yourself out. That's why I sent Jesus to get you out. I spent a good bit of my life, and I know many of you have spent a good bit of your life being outside of life in Jesus, slaves to sin, dead in it, living under its reign and dominion, having no say in the matter of what we do, and yet trying to work our way back to God, to improve ourselves, to work on those bad habits. And Jesus doesn't call you to do that. He calls you to repent, which means turn and run to him. So, if you're here tonight and not in Jesus, keep listening. Sin is a lot bigger than a, a flag on a football field for being offsides or a false start and a 10-yard penalty that you can make up later in the game. Sin is more like a career-ending dislocation, an injury that puts you not on the bench but in the locker room. Done. Something much bigger than making up those 10 yards later must happen. So look to this king who delivers. And if you're here and you're a Christian, pay attention because you're about to rediscover that you are not a slave to your temptations. You are not a slave to sin. You are not living under the dominion of death even. You have been liberated. You are free. Your relationship to this tyrannical master has radically changed. But some of us haven't gotten that memo yet. And we suffer greatly because of it. I do. Do you? So you look to this king who is a deliverer as well and pay attention because what happens on the cross has everything to do with your enemies and mine. Has everything to do with Jesus defeating sin that holds us captive. Fleming Rutledge says, overcoming sin lies at the very heart of the meaning of the crucifixion. It's the centerpiece. It's what the crucifixion of Jesus is about. To liberate you and I out of bondage. That's the second thing I wanted to talk about. Not just that we have an enemy who dominates us, but we need, and if you're in Jesus, you already have a king who delivers decisively. He's not a weak king who tries to deliver but gets shot on the battlefield. He's a king who delivers. Kings in Jesus' day, like Caesar or like Herod or like these other pharaohs and people, they held all the cards. They were kings with power. They had political power. Um, they could, you know, issue decrees and everyone in the land would have to obey him starting the second that decree hit the ground. They could launch initiatives to alleviate famine or poverty or to spread money around to lift people up. 
They had financial power. They could great build huge temples, huge buildings, huge statues or parks. Military power. They could raise armies and dispatch armies to fight wars. They could protect borders. They had rhetorical power, the bully pulpit. They could galvanize a nation, bring unity or correction. But the problem with kings like Herod and Caesar and Pharaoh, no matter the country, then or now, is that they're only able to deal with symptoms, never the source of the problem. All they're able to do is is to take marginal shots at trying to improve some of the symptoms of this great enemy of sin, evil, the devil, Satan himself, chaos with a capital C. And it's the same with today's presidents and senators and CEOs and tech leaders. The best they can do is micro-marginal improvements on the fringes of the symptoms of these problems. Nobody has ever been able to tackle the root, the source, that keeps making famine happen every generation. Poverty happen in every culture. Tribalism happen under every administration. Death and disease happening in every century. Nobody's gotten to the root and the source, and nobody can, even though all of them have a platform that says, elect me, and I'll er eradicate the source of these things. Only a cosmic, supernatural king who is good and who is stronger by far than these enemies can deliver us out of this slavery and attack the source and the root of all that's gone wrong in the world. Did you catch, did you see, did you notice this conquering, delivering king in the passage I read earlier? He was easy to miss if you missed him. I wouldn't blame you. By the time we encounter him on this afternoon, the skin off his back had already been ripped as he was flogged. Caked blood had already just covered his face like a mask and his face was disfigured from broken cheekbones that had been repeatedly getting punched. He looked more like a drunk homeless man who got in a bad fight than the God of the ages. He was unrecognizable. But he was a king nevertheless. And John's not going to let you miss that. All the trappings of royalty and power were there. Did you see them? This was Jesus' inauguration. This was his coronation. Crown and all. Purple royal robes and all. It was intended to be a mock coronation. It was intended to be a joke that the teenage punk Roman centurions who had taken charge of him put together to their great laughter. So they find these thorns with inch, several inch long spikes that shot into his head with pain. They tore his clothes from him like assault victims have done to them. He wore these robes of purple. They gave him a stick to carry like a little play scepter. And they laughed and they said, Hail King. Just like they would say, Hail Caesar. When who they believed was the true king came to town. Hail Jesus. You big king. John was there. 
The man who wrote this didn't get this fourth hand or fifth hand or read it in a book. He was there within earshot of Jesus because Jesus talks to him when he's on the cross dying. And as John, 60 years later, thinks back to that awful and that glorious and that beautiful day, John wants you to see what he saw in retrospect. There's my king. There's my king. Every single detail of royalty, John slows down and brings back up in front of you every time. I bolded it. I underlined it in your passage so you can see. He is rubbing Jesus' royalty, his kingship, in our faces. It's recorded ten separate times in this one account that Jesus is called Jesus King of the Jews. And he's not just called the King of the Jews. Because further down in the passage, there's this ironic moment where Jesus is announced for all the world as not a King of the Jews, but King of the world. King of all humanity, an international savior, not of a Near Eastern tribe, but of all the world. There is, uh, when, when, when people were crucified by the Romans, they were usually the worst of the worst. It was not a terribly frequent method of execution. Um, there were other ways to kill people that were a lot faster. It might have gotten the point across differently. This was used to tell the people, you want to play with us? This is your fate. It was a long, drawn-out affair, usually lasting days, as somebody suffocated to death. What would it have been like to be walking down the road and you hear someone in the last 15 minutes of their life, you've heard that they were crucified the day before, and you had to go run an errand, and you happened to be there 26 hours later, when the end was just around the corner. What would it be like to see that person in the sun heaving for breath, crying out? Well, right above the criminals that would die there, there would be just a simple plaque with their crime because the Romans wanted you to see if you do this, this is what will happen. If you steal, this is what will happen. If you try to start a revolution and tip off Caesar, this is what will happen to you. So Pilate says right on Jesus' plaque, blasphemy, which was the charge the Jews said he was guilty of. This man claimed to be the king. He claimed to be the son of God. And so Pilate says, okay, then right on the plaque, the king, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they got all bothered by that because, no, 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 Pilate, you idiot. He's not the king, but he claims to be the king. Don't put he's the king. That's what he's getting charged with. The Romans did not like the Jews, and the Jews did not like the Romans. Pilate wants to stick it to him. They've ruined his Friday afternoon. He didn't want this to happen. He says, basically, take a hike. The sign's written. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, the dominant languages of the ancient world, announcing in a language everybody knew at the time, this is your king. And John won't let you think that Jesus was a king that was dragged unwillingly and slaughtered against his will as if he's a weakling. Jesus was in control of every detail. That's why John peppers this account multiple times with things like this says, this happened so that the ancient scriptures might be fulfilled. This happened that the word of God might be fulfilled. This happened that this prophecy might be fulfilled. 
This is exactly the way God had always intended to pay for our sins and to deliver us from our enemies. This king, Jesus, is always in control. You know, um, we have trouble with kings and queens these days because all we know is ribbon-cutting, charity-starting, royal family kind of kings and queens, right? They don't have any real power. They give speeches that some people listen to. There's Netflix series about them, but they have no power. They can't do anything. It's hard to remember that back in Jesus' day, kings did everything, especially kings of Israel. Modest Yahoo is a guy, I don't know if anyone listens to him anymore. He's an Orthodox Jewish rapper who lives in Brooklyn and is based there. And he wrote a song about Israel's kings called Refuge. And this is how he described the kings of Israel and how he describes Jesus, who was a king of Israel. The king was the people. All the people were part of the king. He wasn't just a politician. He was a guardian, a battle-tested general, a warrior who would die for his people. He was a singer, a writer, a poet, a philosopher, a mascot for the nation. He was help in times of trouble, a refuge, a tower of strength in the face of an enemy, a rescuer. That is your king. This is who John says your king, your deliverer is. Christian, this is your king. If you don't know this, Jesus, don't miss the point. He's put it in your language He's announced it to your corner of the neighborhood and he said, for you too. For you too. He's your king. And on the cross, he's kicking tail on your behalf to do what you and I could never do for ourselves and God has never asked you to do for yourself. The last thing that we wanted to talk about was not just that, that Jesus is a king who delivers, that our enemy is an enemy that dominates, but he's also a lamb who sacrifices why is a king like the one I just described, like Mahdas Yahu described, this warrior, this guardian, this, this sage, this strong, kind king, why is he in a place like this? Why is God in such a godless place and literally a goddamned place? Why is he in a cursed place? Why is he in a godforsaken place? Why is the living water now saying he's thirsty? Why does the bread of life now hunger? Why does the one who is life now fight for his life? Why is the one who breathes out life not able to get a breath in? You might have missed this comment. I would have, apart from a commentary. Verse 14, take a look at it. It seems like a throwaway detail that makes no sense. But John says... It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. The day of Passover, or preparation for the day of Passover, and it was noon. Which is handy to know the time that this was happening because we also know that at that very hour, every year at the Feast of Passover, something was happening just across the street from where Jesus was crucified. I've been there. Some of you in this room tonight have been there. And uh, what blew me away when I was there at Golgotha is that it is right by a busy highway, just across the old wall. You can see the temple from where he was crucified. So as Jesus is being bound up, raised up, spikes driven through him, blood pouring down, giving his life for his people, just up the hill from within eyesight, the priests at the temple are binding up the Passover lamb and they're slitting its throat. 
Because, do you remember the story? How was the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God to pass over the Israelites when they, had, when they were in Egypt? And God was bringing judgment on the Egyptians. What did he tell them to do? Take blood from an unblemished, clean, innocent lamb and smear it over your doorposts. And my judgment, my condemnation, my wrath will pass you over and you and your little kids will be unscathed. You'll live. Split screen. Jesus, the unblemished one, sacrificed, blood pouring down. The Passover lamb, unblemished, sacrificed, blood being sprinkled on the altar horns to free the people from their sins. This lamb's life for their life. Jesus' life for your life. Everybody knew a dinky little lamb couldn't pay for the sins of a person. He had to. And he had to be clean. Pilate says three times, I find no basis for a charge against him. I find no basis for a charge against him. I find no basis for a charge against him. He is clean. Never did anything wrong. Always loved. Always loved. Always served. Always told the truth. Always stood up for the vulnerable and the weak. Always fought the oppressor. Always loved his father. And here he is saying, Ali, Ali, Lema Sabakthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll give you homework. Go read Psalm 22 tonight when you get home. Psalm 22. If you want to know what the inner life of Jesus dying on the cross for your sins was like, that's it. Being ripped out of communion with the one he had always been with, his father. For the first time in eternity, wondering, where is my father? Why is he not responding to my calls? Where is his comfort? Where is his deliverance of me? You might think that um, for old people who die in nursing homes, uh, well, that's easy. They're old and they knew that they were going to pass away because old people die. Um, and it's not that big of a deal because grandpa or grandma knew that you know, grandma or grandpa was on the verge of death. I think it's the opposite. It's the people who've been together the longest who suffer the greatest loss because they've known each other the deepest, loved each other the most, most savored and prized the presence of that wife or that husband. Jesus had been with the Father for eternity, forever, forever, never a time without him, and now experiences alienation for the first time. Imagine that hell. Jesus is the king who finishes the job. He says it is finished. A commercial or accounting term of the day, which means the debt is paid. It's what they stamped on your receipt when you paid up. Friends, I want to end here. What do you do with this? This is a historical account of something that happened that had real-world consequences for real people. Liberty, deliverance, freedom. What should you and I do with something like this? Um, first, know that if you are in Jesus and he has liberated you from condemnation, if he has substituted himself for your punishment, uh, the verdict that Pilate renders over Jesus is now the verdict that Jesus renders over you. I find no basis for charges against you. Why? The charges have been prosecuted. 
The charges have been exhaustively punished. There is nothing left to charge you with. You are innocent. Yes, even after this morning or last week. Yes, even after what happens tomorrow. There are no charges. There are no basis for charges against you because he took your verdict. Crucify him. Crucify him. What else can you do with all of this? We can fight back against your besetting sin patterns, your temptations, because you are not a slave. Just because the devil is still a bully, just because the flesh tries to obscure the fact that you've been liberated, doesn't mean you're a slave. Just because you feel like a slave doesn't mean you are a slave. The Christian living by faith believes Jesus when he says, I did it all for you. The work is finished. And they begin to punch back, fight back, pray for grace and strength to push back. What does this mean? It means you can talk to your friends about your sins that you're still struggling with. Why? Because they've already been publicly exposed in front of a crowd that laughed and mocked and spat and and recoiled in disgusted judgment. Your sins that you're afraid to be seen in public have already been seen in public. And guess what? The crowd had the reaction that you most fear. Jesus took that for you. They've been disarmed. There are no accusations against you. No mockery, no ridicule. It means that you can stop saying to yourself or joining your mind as it says, crucify him, crucify her. And you add your voice to this self-hatred because you can know that Jesus has already experienced that on my behalf. It means that you can take courage that you are battling a chicken with its head cut off. You, because you're in Jesus, are stronger than your enemy now. You can say no. You can turn around. We can walk away. It means you can draw near to God with a clean conscience now. Not having to plead your case. Not having to say, this time I really mean it. Not having to try to go a week with really good stuff to counteract the bad stuff. But it means you can be honest with God and say, can we now have a conversation about how I really change? Because I really want to change. You can, you, can, you can throw away all the pleading and trying to clean yourself, accept the fact that you're clean, and you can move forward with a conversation of, I want to be like Jesus. I really do. Would you help? It means that you can repent of looking to worldly powers to solve a problem they can't touch. Technology and politics, business and money, influence can't touch the source of the world's problems, but your Jesus can and has. And so you can participate as he pushes back this kingdom of darkness. Friends, if you don't know him, what can you do? If you are here tonight and you are what Jesus or what Paul or what scripture calls a slave, like all of us were at one point, what can you do? You can cry out to one who came to release captives. He's not surprised that that's your status. It's the reason he came, to do something you can't do for yourself. He is willing and he is able to save you. Friends, this is your king on his inauguration day, on the day of his coronation. Let's pray. Jesus, show your kingly power to each and every one of us by liberating us. Some of us are free, but they're like me, so scared of what they still struggle with, so intimidated and overwhelmed by it, so just eclipsed by the record of failure that we've taken our eyes off of you. Free us. Get us out of that 
fetal position in the corner and back in the race, back moving forward with you. For those who do not know you, show your kingly power by proving the devil to be a weakling, a chicken with his head cut off, still foolishly running around, not knowing that his end is set, his fate is certain. Oh, do this, Jesus. 